You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. Thank you so much to everyone who's shared this morning. That's great. It's really encouraging, really enriching. Um, it's so good to be the people of God together. And it's so good to be able to talk to you as well about the people of God and to be able to speak about God's ways and God's purposes in the church. So what I'm going to be doing this morning is speaking to you from three New Testament verses uh, that share a particular type of word. And those three verses and those words build up something of a theological picture of what is going on here. So the sermon's called What's Going On? It's not about Marvin Gaye, but you know, you have to have Marvin Gaye to talk about what's going on. And it's not a question either. I'm not asking the question, what's going on? It's more, it's about what's going on. You understand? I want to help you by drawing attention to some scriptures and exploring some deep dives into some Greek words. I want to help you to understand what's going on because it's really, really important. And I think there are all kinds of competing versions within the world that we live that want to tell us what's going on. And we know some of the things that are going on at the moment. We're very aware of it. We've got TVs and smartphones and computers. We can tell. But there are certain things that are going on that are really, really key in what God is doing. And I want to really highlight those this morning and speak about what's going on from that perspective, from a theological perspective that has to do with us together as the gathered church. So to begin with, I'm going to speak to you for a little while about the economy of God. The economy of God. Rishi Sunak has recently done his economic piece, and, uh, and who would envy that job? Having to think about budgets in a post, well, even, not even post-pandemic, a pandemic-riddled nation but with all kinds of stuff going on. But I want to talk about the economy of God, which is very different. And I want to talk to you about it from one verse in Ephesians. And if you've been around churches like this for a long time, uh, you would probably have heard about 10,003 sermons on this particular verse, but that's because it's really, really key. It's a great verse for preachers, but it's a great verse, Uh, and that's why preachers pick it and preach on it, because it is so rich in terms of what's going on. And it's Ephesians 1 verse 10. It reads this, God's plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth. This is a verse that tells you what God is doing. That question haunts us, doesn't it? What's God doing? It tends to haunt us when we ask it personally, more than on the bigger picture. When we kind of get stuck in asking the question for us personally, what's God doing? I just don't understand what God's doing. It's like starting down here in small details and and not realizing that God is doing something massive and that we've been caught up into that massive picture of God. Now, I don't want to get ahead of myself because I will talk about how we're caught up in this. 
But it's really important for us to understand the big picture of what God is doing. And then to try and understand and discern what that looks like in our own lives, in the present, in the smaller details, if you like. So let me make a few comments about this verse. Most English translations talk about God's plan for the fullness of time. And time there is singular. But you need to know that it's actually really plural. It should be God's plan for the fullness of times. Because in a kind of Hebrew mindset, this is the the Apostle Paul writing this letter, Paul the Pharisee, someone who knew the Scriptures, who was versed deeply in in a Hebraic mindset, even though he's writing in Greek, he he understood that time was something, there there was all kinds of times, epochs, eras, ages, if you like. In fact, the Bible, if you really explore it, is divided up into ages. There is the old age and there is the age to come. The old age is the age marked by sin and brokenness and corruption. And the age to come, which has been inaugurated by Jesus' resurrection from the dead and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, is an age where there will be none of that. In fact, we heard about that age age from Rob. Behold, I'm making all things new. So time is not just one thing. And in the Western world, time is this linear thing with a beginning and an end, and we're just kind of toddled along in time. But from the Scripture's point of view, times mean all the times. How many are there? I don't know. Does it matter? No. Because all of them, Paul says, are being gathered up together in Christ Jesus. Perhaps a better way of putting it is that they are being weaved together. God is taking what looks like all the random bits and bobs of historical oddity and incongruity and weaving them together in Christ Jesus. Christ is the key to all of human history. It all only makes sense in him. He's the center of it. The cornerstone, the centerpiece, the goal, the reason, everything. And in Christ, God is bringing everything together in him. Bits in heaven and on earth. Now that's important because creation is the heavens and the earth. And we tend to think of earth as the creation, and perhaps if we're brave enough, we try and get our heads around the billions and zillions of stars and planets and galaxies and all the rest of it. And that cooks your brain, so you go back to smelling flowers, because that's a lot more easy to think about creation like that, isn't it? But all of the creation, the heavens and the earth, are being brought together in the fullness of times by God in Christ. There is a plan and a purpose that is being unfolded in and through history with all its beautiful bits and all its ugly, horrific bits. Nothing falls outside of God's plan in Christ to weave everything together in him. Now, I don't know what that looks like for all the broken, messy, awful, ugly bits. And that's because I'm not God, and neither are you. And sometimes one of the weaknesses about churches like ours is that it's very, very familiar and intimate. And part of that familiarity and intimacy leads to losing sight of something called transcendence, the otherness of God, who God is in God's self if there was nothing else but God. 
And there was a time, or an eternity rather, when that was true. There was a moment when there was no creation, and God was God, and God was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect unity, three persons sharing one divine essence, all the rest of it, you know? God knows God better than we know God. And so God knows God's purposes and God's plans better than we know God's purposes and God's plans. But he has revealed to us his plan in Scripture that in Christ Jesus, he is weaving together all things, all the disparate, loose ends of what we call history, God is bringing together in Christ. It's all heading to Christ as its goal. It's all got him as its final end, if you like. In the book of Colossians, Paul writes to the church, and he talks about Jesus as the firstborn from the dead. It's very important that we understand what's happening there. It means that Jesus is the first bit, if you like, to speak in slightly crude terms of this creation, the human Jesus, the man Christ Jesus, who was crucified and died and buried, has been raised from the dead. Resurrection has broken out into the current old age, and Jesus is now enthroned at the right hand of the Father. It means that the first bit of creation, if you like, in Jesus represented in the flesh of Jesus, is now changed, transformed. He's the firstborn from the dead. What has happened to Jesus will happen to you and to me and to the whole cosmos. Wow. When you next look at the news and face plants and grieve and throw soft things at your TV, because of all the one man and one government are wreaking on another nation. Understand that God is making all things new. Understand that the answer is not to rally behind a political call. Understand that the kingdom of God does not come through just doing good. Understand that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead and that God's plans land in him. That God will do for the whole created order what he has done in Jesus already. A transformation, a making new, a weaving everything together, a putting all things to rights. Now I said I'd give you a little bit of Greek. Here it is. The word for plan in this verse in Ephesians is oikonomia. Not say it. Yeah, that'll do. No one's going to give you an exam on it, are they? Oikonomia, oikonomia. It's the word where you can see, can't you? It's the word that is the basis of the English word economy. You could see that in there. So it basically is, is a way of speaking about God's economy, God's ordering, God's strategizing, God's planning of things. It's the oikonomia. When Paul talks about this big picture plan. It's an economic design, not in terms of money, but in terms of a person, in terms of Jesus, in terms of an ordering of everything. It's the economy of God. He set a course in motion to join heaven and earth together to bring universal acclaim to King Jesus as the all in all. That's the big picture. 
When you next think, what is God doing? Think back to this. This. This is what God's doing. This is what he's up to. Now, I want to try and help you to see how you and I come into this biggest of big pictures. It's really important to start with the big bit first and then do like the sub bits, if you like. Because otherwise what we do is we start with us and we get really, really excited and then oh, we realize that we can't go very far because it's just us. If we start talking about humans first, well, that doesn't stretch too far, does it, particularly? The famous Swiss theologian Karl Barth said in the 20th century that God is not man said with a loud voice. In other words, there's a difference. You can't just talk about men and what men are doing or people are doing and assume that that's just what God is doing. God is other and different, but he draws us into what he's doing, and this is where we need to think about what's going on. So I want to talk to you for a few minutes now then about the household of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul, who wrote Ephesians, refers to the church as the household of God, there you go, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. Now, a couple of comments about this verse. The pillar and the bulwark of the truth. The church both upholds and defends, or contends for, perhaps you could say, the truth that Jesus is Lord. And the church also puts the truth that Jesus is Lord on display. A pillar is something that you put something on top of. You know, like those nice Mother's Day cards and plants and flowers that you got. You, know? you put something on display on a pillar for people to see. There it is. It's upheld. It's lifted up. So everyone goes, oh, wow. And a bulwark is a defense. It's something that strengthens something, that protects and fortifies. And so the church as a community, as a household of God, is in the earth to both uphold as a, as a display of the truth of the gospel and also to defend, to contend for the truth of the gospel. But I want you to look at the way that Paul thinks that this gospel truth is upheld and displayed. Because you mustn't think that the idea here is that, well, you have a few Christians who, who write the occasional book and maybe a newspaper article, and perhaps you get someone who's, you know, what's the, what's the popular term at the moment? Uh, an influencer. What we need is more Christian YouTubers. That's the last thing that we need. How does Paul construe the church upholding and defending the truth? Well, look at the word household of God. The church isn't just a guardian of something abstract, but it's the place where the truth of the gospel is literally fleshed out and modeled for the world to see, displayed to the world through family relationships. Sometimes people talk about the church as an institution, and it's a really unfortunate word to use to describe the church. It's never a word that the Bible uses to describe the church. One of the most lamentable things that I ever hear 
as a pastor, being completely honest, Susanna's thinking, oh no, don't worry. One of the most lamentable things I ever hear is, what's the church going to do about such and such and such and such? See, the implication there is that the person who says it is not part of the church. The church is this institution that is more really like the elders and deacons. And the question really is, what are you six people, seven people going to do about this particular thing? And it betrays a a, a massive misunderstanding about the nature of the church. That the church is the household of God. It's not the business of God. It's not the corporation of God. It's not the institution of God. It's a family. It's familial relationships. And so when someone says, what's the church? If someone says to you, here you go, I'll give you this for free. If someone says to you, what's the church going to do? You say, I don't know. Surely that is, what are you going to do? Because the responsibility comes back on us when we ask that question as Christians, because we are the church. Right? It's really, really key. It's not simply that our nuclear families portray the gospel and reflect the gospel, although they do and they should. Although, by the way, it's not a theological conviction that it is our nuclear families that should always be first in everything. Jesus said, I came to set mother and father and daughter and son against one another. There's something in the gospel that divides in that sense. It breaks down cultural norms and ideas about how things work, and it insists that this is the true family of God. Okay? The family relationships that matter in God's economy are these ones here. The relationships that matter the most for displaying the gospel are the ones between different types of families in the family of God. Diversity that is reflected through a unity of worship and trust and love and service and faithfulness and compassion and kindness and goodness towards one another. The way that the church portrays and displays and upholds the truth of the gospel is by getting these relationships right. Now that's really difficult to say because we all know full well that we suck regularly, consistently. And it's sometimes one of the things that people who are not Christians go, excuse me, flag-waving moment, but hasn't the church been responsible for all kinds of atrocities? Yeah. Gutted. The point is not to go, oh, no, 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 no. There are far worse things that have happened outside of the church. Well, that doesn't serve anybody. The point is to go, I know. But here's the thing. If the church is what Scripture says it is, surely when you bump up against some kind of discrepancy between what Christians say and what they do, surely the point is not to go, ah, that's it, I'm off. This doesn't work. They're rubbish. I hate it. The church is terrible. Nobody ever, hi John, nobody ever pays it, slam, 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 doors, bang, crash, wallop, I'm gone. (laughs) What am I doing? Um, (laughs) The point is not to throw it all out. Here's the point. Go deeper. Dig deeper. 
lean in more. Don't distance, don't back away, oh, it's not what they say. No, lean in. Okay, take, take a posture of trust, of confidence in God. It's a bit rough around the edges, and I'm a bit burnt, but I, I believe this picture of the church in Scripture, and I want to lean into that. I don't want to toss everything away because it wasn't quite right for me one time. I'm going to try and lean into this. Look, it's so key. You'll never find a church that is free of human weakness and brokenness that spills over and infects other people. That's just the way it is. If there wasn't any issue in the church ever, well, there'd be no New Testament, frankly. Well, a lot of it would be missing because Paul wouldn't have had to write to people go, Oi! Sort yourself out. Give your head a wobble. Like, what are you doing here? There are issues. Yeah, there are issues. But self-involvement, leaning in, digging deeper, is a better tactic than withdrawal. Withdrawal soon leads to isolation. And isolation is a really dangerous place to be as a Christian. Now, okay. Oh, where am I in my notes? I want to do a little deep dive again with a Greek word. Church. I know, it was household of God, but it's talking about the church. Paul calls it the oikotheo. Look, spot the difference. Okay? You see? Oikonomia, oikotheo. Economy, household. There's the same root thing going on here. Why is that really important? Well, it's important because God has placed a stupendously high value on this messy, up and down, inconsistent thing that is called the church. A stupendously high value on it. Jesus died to win a church, a people, a bride. And the oikotheu, the people of God, the household of God, is the most significant means by which God's oikonomia is being unfolded in the earth. Okay? There are all kinds of good Christian charities that are doing good works, and we celebrate and we rejoice that that is happening in the world. But the primary means through which the oikonomia, the economy, the plan of God to weave together all things in Christ, the primary way that is happening on the earth is through the oikotheu, the household of God. And it's the ordering and the working on the relationships within the church that preaches to the world that there is a, there is a king called Jesus who is alive and who is making all things new. And if you come and hang out in and amongst us, you will discover the way that this works. You will find that you are being made new. In fact, you will touch and feel and sense and receive from Jesus because here in this household, amongst these relationships, the gospel and the plan of God is being fleshed out. It's not just killing time until he beams us up at the end. He is working out the economy here amongst us in this place. 
now. So don't dare think, oh, the church is just an institution. What's the church going to do? This is the place where that massive picture is taking shape and taking root. There's so much at stake, brothers and sisters. We dare not minimize the heart of God for his church. Now, I know at times it feels like it's all teetering on the brink. Sometimes it feels like it's so flaky, it could just collapse at any moment. But honestly, what is going on here is about as close as you can actually get to the heart of absolute reality that you can imagine. This is ultimate reality. It's as near as you can really get. The dwelling place of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the place where God's holy presence fills it, and God is here, present among his people. The economy of God fleshed out in the household of God. Now, how does this all, oh goodness me, how does this all happen? Like in some more practical terms maybe. Well, let's talk about stewards of God for a moment. My final verse for this morning. It's 1 Peter 4 verse 10. It says this. Like good stewards of the manifold grace of God, serve one another with whatever gift each of you has received. Okay. Now, you know the school now, okay? There's a Greek word incoming. Get ready. <laughs> it's the word steward. <gasps> oikonomon. Oik! It's another oiky word. Oik, oik, oik. I wanted to do oggy, oggy, oggy. Oik, oik, oik. Just could become the, like, what do you think? Devoted 2023? Nah. As you can imagine Graham Pyman doing that, a devoted or something. Oggy, oggy, oggy. Anyway, so uh, the, the plan, the church, the steward, it's the same root going on. The economy of God fleshed out through the household of God by means of people who steward the grace of God. That word oikonomon, it shows up also in the New Testament to describe overseers or, or elders, leaders in the church. But now here in 1 Peter chapter 4, it's talking about the whole church. It's talking about all of you. It's talking about each and every one of you, if you would call yourself a Christian and would identify city church perhaps as, well, this is where I, this is, this is my, my church home, my family. It's talking about all of us. And it's really key because it's saying that the church isn't a show that you watch, but a family that you participate in. It's not a hotel that you occasionally visit and order room service that meets your needs and then leave your mess and go to another hotel. <laughs> it's not a social club with liberal values that serves my best interests, and the minute it stops doing that, well, I'll duck out and go somewhere else. It's none of those things. It's a household where God's grace is given to every single one for the benefit of every single one. See, we live in such a, a, a ruthlessly individualistic world 
where the whole culture is designed to tell you you can be anything you want to be and sod anybody who says anything else. Right? Britain's got talent, the underdog, the X factor, media, everything. You choose who you are because that's your right to be you against and above all, all other things. But here's a thing that you might not have construed this as before or thought of. This is actually legalism. Have you ever thought about it like this? It's legalism. Because it basically says, work hard, grasp, seize, take possession of it for yourself, and stand on that ground and say, ha ha, I'm a self-made whatever. That sounds a lot like legalism. That sounds like the antithesis of the gospel which is gift or grace, something, an identity or a purpose or something given to me, not for my own sake, but for the sake of other people. And when we bring that mindset of, I can be whatever I want to be into a church setting, then it causes chaos. Because all of a sudden, it's not grace anymore. We're not talking about gifts, grace, givenness from God. We're talking about, I've got to get mine. And I need to make sure that I do my thing. And here's my thing. And he said that I couldn't do my thing. And now I'm cross. And now I'm going to leave. But grace, I mean, the word grace means gift. The church works by means of outpoured grace to everybody, not just to a couple of pros, like somebody came a few months ago and um, <laughs> said to Pete Rayner, one of our elders, he said, where's the pastor? And Pete was like, uh, well, uh, uh, well, there's a few of us who are, no, 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 I mean the, the, the pastor. And, and in the end, Pete had to kind of point him towards me because, you know, I, I lead the team. And, and it's, just, it's just funny because there's this kind of notion that, that there's like a, a, a professional and then there's some other people, you know. There's like a, a Gru and some minions or something. Sorry, guys, shouldn't tell you. <laughs> there's, there's no clergy laity. We're all priests together in God's household. This is one of the radical teachings in the New Testament that the priesthood is now not from one particularly lucky chosen family. We are all priests. We all minister to God and to one another in Christ Jesus. We are all stewards of the manifold grace of God, whether it be speaking or serving, whether it be hoovering this room at the end of the meeting, whether it be opening up early on Saturday for food bank, whether it be small group leading, kids work, intro team, dealing with me with words and PA and everything on the side, well, whatever. Grace from God, stewarded well by us for one another. And it's as the church does that that the economy of God is fleshed out in the household of God. And the grace of God, the gospel of the Lord Jesus is put on display because it's not one person pushing an agenda, but it's a household being shaped and brought together in Christ to display the riches of the gospel 
and God's big picture plan for the fullness of times to the world. Friends, we don't have to try and get the church into what God is doing. That's a a terribly arrogant idea. If only we could get the church into what God is doing. No. The church, for better or for worse, is what God is doing. (laughs) Because it's through the church that his purpose is being fulfilled in the world. It's through you and I, as stewards of the grace of God, that the church is taking shape as that people. And so what do we do with all of that? Well, we lovingly, carefully, prayerfully, in relationship with one another, seek to discern just what it is that has been given to you and to me in terms of grace. We talk, we share, we see what God is giving, and then we make effort to allow that to have its say or its place within the congregation. But it's as we do that together, it's as we focus on the big picture, it's as we lean into the realities of being the household of God together, it's as we take responsibility and ownership for the grace of God that is given to us that the church will display the riches of the gospel to the world. That's what's going on, okay? Now, another way that this is happening is through this meal we're about to eat. Jesus gave his family a meal, a family dinner, and he gave us himself to feast on. And he made it so that we would have to eat and drink and look people in the eye and remember that as we eat and drink Jesus, that we are together eating and drinking Jesus. And that as we look at each other around this table, as we've looked at each other around this room this morning, we are seeing the grace of God taking shape, being fleshed out in lives, and we're seeing the big plan of God unfolding before our very noses. And as we eat and drink, we are drawn again into the way that that works, the suffering of the Messiah and his resurrection. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There is brokenness now represented by broken bread and wine that represents blood, but it points towards a healing and a putting back together of all things. And so it's a meal filled with hope. It's a meal that preaches forgiveness to us individually and corporately. It's a meal that says to you, if you are eating and drinking this and not forgiving your brother or sister in your heart, then you've got work to do. (laughs) It's a meal that proclaims to outsiders to the gospel that Jesus is alive and tangibly present among his people. It's a meal that proclaims his lordship. So let's eat and drink this meal. The kids are going to start bombing in. So uh, if you want any bread, I suggest that you get up and you find some now. (laughs) 